And seen your country towns. I've seen your golden sunset when evening rolls around. I want you to all sing along. Dancing moonbeams upon your silver sand. To me, you're a beautiful heaven of land. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high. Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies. Watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger. You'll always be a friend. Coming to you from Creative Coworkers in Railtown here in Vancouver, British Columbia. Welcome to Politico's 150th live show. Politicoast, as you know, is the BC Politics Podcast. We've been doing this for almost three years now, almost every week. I think we've missed two weeks, and so that's 150 episodes. So thank you all for helping make this possible. I'm Ian Bushfield. I'm Scott Delonaboe. I'm Nicholas Burling. I'm Zoe Ferry. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the halfway mark of the Horgan NDP government, and we'll do a little preview of the federal election. But we have to do a couple thank yous, a couple notes before we begin. Of course, we want to acknowledge that this event is taking place on the ancestral and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Salotooth people. We also have to, or want to acknowledge, all the people who helped make this possible. Patrick, thank you for helping run the door. Uh, shout out to Dee and Creative Coworkers for helping host us and for lining up the beer and our bartender tonight. Give a shout out for the bartender. Creative Coworkers is hosting an election night party on October 21st, so stay tuned for more details about that. It's a good thing to come out to. I wanted to thank a beer sponsor, but we ended up drinking Pacific Pilsner, and a fun Politico story is in the early days of Politicoast, when we didn't have a lot of Patreon money, we don't have much now, but we would use some of that to buy beer, and because I'm cheap, we would buy what was the cheapest, and so Pacific Pilsner is the unofficial beer of Politicoast and the beer of tonight, so please drink the beer. It helps pay for everything that's happening. And as always, big shout out to BC Today, which helps continue to keep our podcast going because as Shannon Waters writes her great newsletters, we have content to opine about. So if you want good content to opine about, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca and use the offer code CITIZEN for a special rate. And she's also put up recently all of the unpaywalled editions, and some of the old editions are up on there as well. So you can read, get a sense of what's going on. And the last thing to say before we begin, one of the reasons you should continue to support us on patreon.com slash politicoast is because I'm going to be taking a little bit of a hiatus, and we need your help to make sure we can go through what is a very busy season. I'm having a baby. 
more appropriately, my wife is. She's doing all the hard work, and I'm just kind of sitting, drinking beer, talking to friends about politics. But that's happening in September, and as you know, there's an election in October, so Scott's going to keep the podcast going. We'll have some special guest co-hosts, and maybe we'll even pay an editor. And if you give us money, we can pay that editor what they're worth. And you get your podcast in a reasonable turnaround. Yes. You normally edit Friday mornings where I'm at work. Yeah. So you want to get your podcasts on Friday afternoon. We need money for an editor. All right. Well, let's talk to our guests and find out who they are before we jump into the topics. Zoe, on Twitter, you describe yourself as a relapsed political hack. Elaborate. Um, oh, God. This is... I'll give you a bit of my background. I started volunteering for the federal liberals when I was 15. I'm 27 now. Um, and basically worked with them, started formally working with them in 2011 at the start of that election cycle, stayed with them until after the 2015 election cycle and worked with them until April of 2016 and then kind of decided to take a bit of some, some steps back, um, reevaluate if politics was something I really wanted to do. And it was only a few months ago. I've actually just started working in politics again in February of this year. So I had a little bit of a hiatus. It was lovely. I, worked in hospitality, went back to school. So, but unfortunately politics did call me back and here I am again. And Nicola, you've run for office a few times. Tell us a bit about your political background. Sure, I'm uh, fairly new to the um, party political scene. I worked as an LGBTQ2 plus advocate with the Vancouver Pride Society for quite a while. And in 2017, Andrew Weaver reached out to me and, and tried many, many times to get me to run uh, and eventually succeeded. So I ran in the 2017 provincial election in Coquitlam, Myardville. Um, and then I ran again in 2018 in Coquitlam uh, for the municipal election. And now I have started the Tri-Cities Pride Society and I'm sort of combining my work in politics and uh, with Pride uh, along with my work as a general contractor in the construction industry. You're also very active and awesome on Twitter, I'll say. People should follow you both. Well, thank you. I, I get a little more attention on Facebook, but I appreciate my Twitter yeah. following. Uh, one of the reasons I definitely reached out to you is because of your interview on Call the Question, which is another great podcast that I just keep plugging because it should get more attention. And you talked on there about the need for diversity and you know, representation. And I think the policies you also talk about are very interesting. And so I'm glad yeah. to have you here. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm working right now on a political campaign for Amita Kuttner for the uh, federal election, and they have uh, recently come out as um, genderqueer, and, and um, that's something that uh, is, is fantastic. It's really good to see um, non-binary folks uh, having some kind of representation in politics. I mean, um, Morgan, who's in our audience here, and I have both run uh, in provincial politics, and that was a big step uh, for trans folks. And uh, I think it's, this is another step to have a non-binary person there. Yeah, uh, that's uh, Burnaby North Seymour, correct? That's correct, yes, against uh, the legend Sven Robinson. And, and, Terry and the incumbent, Terry Beach for the Liberals. Yeah, I, 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 I try not to mention Terry Beach, so there's the whole pipeline situation. <laughs> How's Terry Beach going to do? Uh, you know, Terry is a hardworking candidate. I've seen him go knock doors more than I've seen a lot of other candidates, so... He's got the work ethic for it. All right, before we jump more into the federal level and make you feel awkward about trying to defend liberals in tight spots, let's look at provincial politics. It's been kind of a surprising couple years for the NDP being government, I think. They came in on what was effectively more votes and more seats for, well, it was more votes and more seats for the BC Liberals, but after 
not shenanigans, but procedurally accurate <laughs> situation. The, the Liberals lost the post-election. Yeah. Uh, we now have a really stable minority government situation. Is this surprising to anyone? No, it's, it's not surprising to me. I know that uh, BC Green's philosophy is uh, collaborative politics, and, and that's exactly what we're seeing, is the NDP and the Greens collaborating. We've seen some hiccups, like Site C and LNG, um, but unfortunately, when you have the NDP and BC Liberals working together to push through issues like that, there's not much that you can do, um, and we're seeing some really good Green policy getting pushed through as well. I mean, I think I had moments where definitely I thought there would be snap elections getting called, um, but... It's surprising how well it's worked out so far. It'll be interesting to see what happens after the federal election and moving, it, moving on past that. But, well, that's, that's the fall term. And that's, an October, that's a November problem. Interesting in the fact that you think there might be a snap election? I don't think there's going to be a snap election. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens after a federal election happens. Well, and that's one of the challenges that kind of no one really realized right away, I think, is that it's not actually easy to bring down the government in B.C. because of how many different majority governments we've had for so long, and not just majority, but like decade-long governments, they've essentially set the rules that the only time you can bring down a government are the throne speech or the budget, and those are both February-March votes, after which they can kind of just drag their heels, get around, and move things along. Now, bills are still being passed, so there is still a lot of good work, as you're talking about, Nicola, between the Greens and NDP and collaboration. Let's move on to what they actually promised and talked about. So the NDP ran on this, let's make BC affordable platform. Housing affordability was the big issue in 2017. It's still a big issue. Have they done enough? We're starting to see perhaps value, home values in Metro Vancouver level off come down a little bit, but should they be doing more? I don't know if they, I feel like those that Vancouver has been sitting on a housing bubble for a long time that's been about to burst. I don't know if necessarily the policies that have been put forward are helping it. I don't, I see properties like being hit with the school tax. I see the, the empty homes tax not necessarily helping the issue because all it is is people who have that money are still going to pay those taxes. They're going to gripe about it more, but they're still paying them. The issue of affordability and accessibility is still just as bad as it was a few years ago, if not more predominant now, I would say. Yeah, the uh, school tax, it softened the top end of the market, but the fact that a $3 million house now sells for two and a half doesn't really help most Vancouver rights. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's still a housing crisis. We're still seeing so many people that can't afford to live in the area that are having to move away from the lower mainland uh, to find other places that they can live and work. Um, but I also see that there are some changes that are happening um, that are a, a result of some of the good work that's being done by the BC NDP. I just don't, don't think that they've gone far enough. Uh, one of the things that BC Greens were calling on was a ban on out-of-country capital investing in BC, and uh, the NDP decided that that wasn't something they wanted to move forward with, and I think that would have really helped to cool off the market. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily see this as a bubble either. Uh, you know, I, my parents bought their place back in 2005, and everyone said, you're buying at the top of the market. This is a bubble. It's going to crash, and their place is worth, you know, two, three times what it was back then. So um, I, I don't really see this as a bubble, but I, I see this as uh, some uh, help coming from the, the BC government, but not enough. It's one of those challenges where you want to make Vancouver more affordable, but what that realistically means is cutting everyone's home value by half or more. And 
that's politically toxic suicide. No, no homeowner is going to vote for you if you just eliminate half of their wealth, even if it's just on paper. So that, how do we stall the market while not destroying people's home equity is I think the challenge they've been facing. One of the things the BC Liberals have continually talked up is where's the supply and is there value to the, or you know, validity to that argument? I think so. I think we've also seen a lot of de potential developments be put on hold in Vancouver because the market isn't there for the high-end developments anymore. I see it a lot in the Oak, in like the Canby Corridor and Oak Park area where you see multi-million dollar houses being bought so they can be turned into these condos that are no longer that are being put on hold for years now. There was, wasn't there one just in Richmond where they had just sold the, they had done all the pre-sales and then they just found out that they're getting their money back because the developer is no longer able to afford to make the, to build the property out? Yeah, there was one development in Richmond where something like that happened. Uh, but a lot of those issues are more municipal in nature. However, all municipalities are basically the creation of the province, so in theory, the supply bottlenecks could be alleviated if the province really felt it was in their interest to step in. Yeah, and I think there's a lot that can be done with the um, housing ministry and municipalities working together to create affordable housing because I think part of the issue is developers see a lot of money in real estate, and that often means building uh, luxury condos. We're seeing that there's less demand for luxury condos, so developers are pulling out from that sort of uh, development, but we're not really seeing the huge increase in affordable housing that we need. And uh, I think there's certain amount of um, demand requirements uh, that, that are going to warrant new builds, but I think there's also a lot of need to free up uh, vacant properties, and, and that's something I think that the NDP have been fairly good at doing. And one of the real challenges of building supply is it's just slow. Even if you take away the permitting issues that are often caused by municipal governments, it just takes time to build buildings. One thing the government has done is massively expanded temporary modular homes. And I think that's been realistically a very solid win for this government. Even where they've had to fight some local opposition, the province-wide story is generally, that's good, even if it's not good in my neighborhood. Yeah, and, that, and that's one of those examples where the province did feel it was important to step in. Maple Ridge said no, and the province said yes, and the province won. We'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> well, from housing affordability to one of the other big stories already, or that has been ongoing for the last couple of years, is pipelines and kind of the connection with climate and all the other energy projects. The government came in clearly against Trans Mountain Pipeline, even if they were vague about other issues. Nicholas, the BC Green, do you think Horgan has used every tool in the toolbox to oppose this pipeline? I think. Oregon has been doing a fairly good job of opposing the pipeline. I think we've been fairly supportive of the work that he's doing. Uh, I, I can't say that I'm happy with what the federal government is doing in pushing it through, uh, or the uh, Alberta government, uh, but as we far as- We can talk a long time about the Alberta we, government. We can talk a very long time, yes. Um, I, I think it's clear that we don't need a pipeline. There's no economic benefit to it. There's no environmental benefit to it. There's really no clear benefit to having a pipeline running through this province um, as it stands at the moment. Um, and I think as long as we have the BC government standing up and, and folks uh, on the ground here in BC standing up against it, th there's a chance that we can get this halted. So why do we buy it, Zoe? <laughs> I didn't work with them at that time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Not to put you on the spot. I mean, it, it, it's a really complicated issue. 
I, and I understand that I have been supportive of the pipeline personally. I think we do have to look at safer ways of transporting this. If we're going to keep using it, we can't stop using natural resources in, without the proper infrastructure in green, in green energy still. And until we have that fully up in place, it is the largest resource. And we can't cut off provinces who depend on that. We can't cut off parts of BC that depend on those resources being developed. And until we move to a more technologically advanced society, we have to actually remember we are a, we are a resource-based country. And I, I think it's important to note here that uh, no one's calling for fossil fuels to be cut off entirely. What we're talking about is making sure that we're not expanding our fossil fuel infrastructure, making sure that we're investing in renewable energy solutions instead. And so that's, I think, the key here is that we obviously still have a demand for fossil fuels, but we don't need to be increasing our supply of them at the moment. I, I do believe that the government, federal government has said that the money that was going to be gained from the Transbound Pipeline would be used to develop green energy. Green energy. Which, Which assumes that any money comes from it. <laughs> it's also a new argument, whereas initial, I think a lot of the in initial discussion, especially when BC was debating it before the purchase of it, it was very much on just, it's going forward, the government's supportive of the project, then the government steps in and buys it, and then it was when the final NEB decision comes forward that the that's when I remember them starting to bring up that new, long, new line around. It, it was recently announced, mm -hmm. the last couple months. That's not to say I disagree with that line. I think it's clever political strategy. So one of the questions, though, is the pipeline, when it's pulled in BC, is very split. There's often this paint, you know, picture painted of British Columbia that we're uniformly against the pipeline, but it's sometimes 50-50, sometimes slightly... there was a 70 31 poll that was being pushed around for a bit. In support uh, or opposed? In a support of the pipeline. This depends how you ask the question. As with any yeah. poll. The, the numbers I've heard have it more 60-40 in favor. Yeah, and I think when you look at the amount of support that uh, is in favor of the pipeline, it correlates to a lot of the ad campaigns that the Alberta government have been putting out there, and, and there's a lot of misinformation in those campaigns that are convincing folks that there's an economic benefit to the pipeline, but when you look at the um, economics of it, it was based on a, a price per gallon of $100, uh, and, and that just doesn't exist anymore. But will it make gas in Metro Vancouver cheaper? <laughs> no. Which is like one of the weirdest stories that came up six months ago. John Horgan announces this inquiry into why is gas $1.70, and suddenly gas drops 20 cents a liter and stays around there. And even my parents, who were in town from Alberta, were driving through and they're like, gas actually isn't that bad here. What were we hearing about? And is the public inquiry into gas prices smart politics? I, I think so. I, that, was, that was obviously way too easy of a question. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone hates gas companies. Yeah. Do you want things to be cheaper is always popular politics. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly an issue when it comes to price fixing because we've got uh, prices that are fluctuating hugely, and, and it's not based on the price per barrel. It's not uh, related at all to the carbon tax either. That increased prices by one cent a liter. So uh, it really comes down to why are gas companies able to get away with changing the prices in the way that they do, and I think it's important that we have an inquiry into that to, to see if there is gouging at play, and, and I think it's pretty clear that there, there probably is. I definitely think in BC we've seen price coaching. I have anyone who says that the carbon tax has been an issue with BC's had a carbon tax for over a decade now. Well, and that's where it's so weird for the BC Liberals to be taking, I think, the opposite line of like, why can't this inquiry look into the taxes on it? And it's, 
a matter of... I think it's the tax shift of what the carbon tax was before, where it was revenue neutral and now it's profit generating is the goal. And I can see that line, but what effect that has on gas prices is not the greatest line. Yeah, we're talking going about from six cents a liter to seven cents a liter. It's, it's just not that much. And it also kind of undercuts what I think is a very strong record they have on bringing in the first carbon tax in North America. So it just weakens them overall to hit on that. While we're talking money, though, I think I want to talk about the other big story of the last, it's not quite a year yet, but it feels like forever, is the spending scandals. We don't have a good name for it yet in the Ch BC Chippergate? legislature. Chippergate? <laughs> I heard someone suggest we should have a moratorium on using gates in scan <laughs> spending scandals, and I kind of agree. I do like the chipper word chipper. scam? So in, what was it, November, it kicks off with the clerk and sergeant-at-arms being marched out by Victoria PD out of the legislature, and then we find out later that Daryl Plekis and this Alan Mullen he'd hired have been running around conducting secret investigations, playing spy, and some of it turns out to be true, the allegations they throw out, others maybe a bit overblown. Policies seem to be incredibly lax and misabused, but not necessarily broken. What's your just take on all of this? This might be one of Daryl Plakis's most successful witch hunts that he's gone, <laughs> gone through. Um, but it, it was shocking to see just how those contracts were written, how lax the rules around everything in that department seemed to be. And it boggled my mind. Like We've seen spending scandals, but this was a very unique one where it wasn't, nothing was actually illegal. It was questionable, very questionable, but they didn't we, break the law technically. We should say the RCMP are still investigating. And so, and, and they haven't something. announced what they're investigating yet either. Yeah. So th there could be illegal stuff. Nothing that's been said so far has been illegal. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of questions that remain uh, to be answered. And I, I think it's quite clear that there are, uh, there's a significant amount of dysfunction within the BC legislature. And, and it's important that we get to the bottom of where that lies and, and how to fix it. But I, I'm still waiting to hear a lot of the answers around this. And it's one of the scandals I don't know if we ever will hear them all because of the HR natures of it. But it was fascinating to watch the Beverly McLaughlin study come out, which you know vindicates some of his claims, but then finds there wasn't specific misappropriation because the rules were followed, but the rules are crap. And then it also kind of smacks down Daryl Plekis as like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, stop playing cop. You're not a cop. Pass your if don't go on these trips if you think they're illegal. Yeah. Tell someone. D don't drive by the uh, house of the clerk. Yeah, don't go scoping out the wood chippers. Well, I mean, we also saw Daryl Plekis's war on women's attire at the legislature not too recently. Was that, a, was that a Plekis? I thought that was the sergeant at arms office. No, it was Plekis's office. Plekis issued a weird letter. Letter about how we... Right. Oh, yeah, right. When it came sleeveless up. Sleeveless yeah. shirts. Which, to his credit, they walked back pretty quickly. It took about a week. It was like a day. It was like oh, the was next day, day yeah. I think, that they announced. Yeah, it was pretty quick there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of backlash from all sides, though. Yeah. I saw a lot of CAs and caucus and, and, and cabinet ministers encouraging their staff to wear it. I, I saw some great posts oh. on social media from some of the it. MLAs. I right to bear it. arms. <laughs> One of the best scandals of the year, I think. <laughs> Non-scandals. I think that's a good place to turn into what I labeled a game on here, but it was more just a way to kind of end our discussion about 
the BC government so far, and that's to give everyone a grade on how they've done so far in their first two years. So kind of like we're you know, elementary school teachers, only instead of giving okay, needs improvement, we'll give them a normal letter grade like I think we all had in school. It's like middle school then. Middle school, like middle school, maybe high school. We don't need to get into percentages, but let's start with the BC NDP and John Horgan. Scott, what grade would you give them so far? A B plus. Yeah, I give them a B. I'm going with B. Some, yeah, somewhere between a B plus and an A minus. I'm a bit more biased, but fair enough. All right, Zoe, the BC Liberals, and Andrew Wilkinson. It's gonna kill me to say this, but I think it's gonna be a C for this. I think it's in their defense, it's still going through a learning process and a rebuild of, a, of the party from, a, it's learning how to be opposition after 16 years of government. Yeah, I'm... Well, you know, well, you know what they say, C's get degrees. <laughs> That's D's. That's D's, actually. Yeah, they were, they were doing great. <laughs> Nicola. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I have to give them an eye on this one because I do think they have a lot of work to do. Like I, an incomplete? Yeah, I don't think they're contributing much at the moment. C minus, they, they definitely need improvement. Yeah, they could definitely be doing a lot worse. They're keeping, I think, the most... They're keeping their base happy. They're keeping their base happy, but they're also not putting their foot in it too much. Like, there are some people who could be really embarrassing them, who I don't think are, which is probably good. Yeah, there's too a much. few MLAs that they <laughs> haven't had any bozo eruptions from, so that's good. But there's still like the weird things like that photo op at the West Van Yacht Club that just <laughs> did not work at all. And just a lot of little things like that from Andrew Wilkinson that doesn't connect, doesn't reach outside the base at all. And their strategy basically seems to be, okay, we're just going to hammer the points that we think will win the three ridings we need, and that's it. And <laughs> it's kind of a lazy strategy. All right. The BC Greens and Andrew Weaver. We'll start with you, Nicola. <laughs> you know, I think... You don't hear a lot about the Greens because they're not really getting their message out there, but I'm still going to have to give them an A. I know I'm biased, <laughs> but uh, I think they're doing exactly what they said they were going to do. Zoe? I'll give them a B. They've been there. You, you hear about them every now and then. I think I want to hear more of what their message is as a party in opposition. Mm -hmm. So I I'd like that as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> C plus B minus, somewhere in there. They've gotten a few things passed. They, they've influenced some government legislation. They've got a private member's bill all the way to becoming a law. So that's been good. But at the same time, they're, you don't hear much from them. They're new to holding the balance of power and occasionally a bit incoherent in their messaging and what they want to see. And overall, they haven't had much of an impact. And the lack of confidence motions means they can't really hold the government's feet to the fire. Yeah, I think last year I might have given them a B and now I'm moving more towards a C because I think their relevancy, they're struggling for relevancy. I think fundraising numbers might start to show they're also starting to struggle with a broader public. Now, that could quickly change around in an election, but what differentiates Andrew Weaver from the NDP agenda to the broad public? We partisans and you know people who pay a lot of attention see the subtleties, but I think... You know, where is the opportunity for growth for the BC Greens right now outside the three ridings they hold? That's where I think they're struggling. I think it'll be interesting to see how they do on the island next election after this federal. I mean, no one, I think, saw them winning a seat in a by-election. So The that, federal Greens. Yeah. Mean, yeah. But, I, but it's going to be interesting to see how people co correlate the federal Greens from the provincial Greens and how they do. Well, and as a bonus, I want to get grades for Daryl Plekis and Alan Mullen. Uh, Scott, let's start with you. 
them as a no team. idea how to grade them. <laughs> C. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I, I struggle with this as well, so I'll, I'll go with a C, too. I'll give them an I on this one. <laughs> I'm going to give them a, you know, an A for entertainment value alone. Just like, <laughs> name, like, other than the political nerds in the room, and I'm looking at you, Patrick, like, how many people in here can name more than two speakers in the, from the BC legislature? Ryan can as well. People know Daryl Plekis. Maybe not a lot, but uh, he's done more. I will still argue people know they, we have a speaker. I yeah. don't know if they know who he is still. I think more people knew of him than previous speakers. And for good or bad, it's entertaining and it's free content. It keeps your show active, right? Exactly. It's what we live for. Scott, I think I'll let you lead the next segment. Okay. Uh, so moving on to our second and final main segment. Uh, as most of you are probably aware, there's an election coming up. And we're going to dive into what to expect, what uh, Trudeau's record has been so far, and whether or not he's going to be able to hold on to power. Maybe. <laughs> so, uh, elections coming up October 21st, but uh, just first off, high-level takes. Who's going to win? Ian? It's still Trudeau's to lose. Canadians rarely turf a government after one term, and so it's hard to see where people are so angry with Trudeau and so enamored with Sheer or Jagmeet Singh? Um, I, I, I think it's going to be a liberal minority. Um, I think the other leaders have so far not shown up. I, I mean, Jagmeet has been to Burnaby South how many times since he won that by-election? He's there tomorrow. So I'll be make it. I still don't know. I, I don't actually know. I think that's the third or fourth. He was there to announce his book as well. Yeah. I live in the riding, but I'm not um, on his list yet. I think people are frustrated with the Trudeau government, with obvious frustrations, but I think the alternatives have not proven themselves yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think a liberal minority is probably the most likely outcome as well. Uh, I also think that the federal NDP are struggling to stay relevant at the moment. I'm seeing a big surge from the Greens, but we've got a long way to go f to get from one MP to forming government. And the Conservatives, I'm happy to see uh, sort of plateauing in their polling at the moment. Uh, so I think a liberal minority is, is probably the most likely. I agree. Minority government's the most likely and probably... 75% chance that minority is going to be a liberal one. So let's move on to some of the big issues uh, in this election. The environment and climate is one the liberals have been really keen to run on. Are they going to be able to capitalize on all the attention they're giving that issue? Well, I mean, I don't think they have much to run on when it comes to the environment when they're pushing through pipelines and not properly protecting uh, our coastline. Um, there's really a lot to be um, desired when it comes to the Liberal government's position on the environment. I think the NDP has a much more solid platform and the Greens have a, a more solid platform still. It's definitely been frustrating to watch the Liberals' policies. I think you saw them struggle for the first few years and now they're starting to get to a point where they can put together cohesive policies about the environment. Is it a little too late for them? I don't know, but I think in BC, it's going to be really interesting to watch their environmental policies and how it's going to affect the, a lot of MPs here. Yeah, the Liberals have made a couple announcements in the last couple months about, you know, we'll ban single-use plastics in the next year. We'll start to do some of these steps towards climate change. Remember, if Andrew Scheer gets in, he's going to do the exact, he's going to tear it all down. He's going to repeal the carbon tax and undo all our good work. And so the messaging is there, and it's clearly an attempt to 
push out all the opposition parties. It's in Trudeau's benefit to make it a two-party race, mm. right? To ignore, it's what Mulcair wanted the 2015 election to be, was NDP versus Conservatives, but then people went, that doesn't make any sense, this is Canada. <laughs> and then it was Liberals versus Conservatives, so. And I think the NDP made a huge mistake in sort of moving from uh, left of centre towards centre. I think that was At least where in they terms really of failed. messaging. Exactly. I actually disagree with that. I think if you look at where things were on August 3rd, 2015, when the writ was issued, the NDP was running in first place, the Liberals didn't look like they were doing very great, and if they had managed to actually usurp the Liberals as the alternative to the Conservatives, we would be looking at a much different political landscape and it could have you know, set the tone of politics for a generation and it was worth the risk for the NDP to try and do that. Now they executed that badly, but they were right to try it. Well, and I was talking about this prior to the show because I just read a couple, or last month, the book, The New NDP, which I think I've talked about before, which is an very wonky political science analysis of the NDP from 2000 to 2015, which is what political scientists do. But it makes the case that Mulcair essentially ran the Jack Layton playbook, which is moderate, 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 appeal to, you know, micro-target and appeal to a broad base, and smile. And Mulcair doesn't smile great, we learned. It's creepy. It's so creepy, right? Well, he, and tried, I was, he tried to be Jack Layton, that's it. but he doesn't have the charisma. He doesn't have the appeal, and voters made that very clear to him. And, well, I think he kind of did. The trouble is, he left that in question period. It never showed up on the campaign trail. I think that's exactly it. He was very good as an opposition leader in question period. Uh, when it came to campaigning, there was nothing inspiring about him whatsoever. But that also speaks to, I think, what everyone forgets about Trudeau is he is a really good campaigner. Like, in any debate, those those theater skills really come out. Yeah, he's flashy and charismatic, and, and that attracts people's attention for sure. Well, and that's where the NDP seems to have, in some ways, tried to say, who's our most Trudeau-centric in Jagmeet Singh? And that's not a good idea to run, you know, Instagram candidate versus Instagram candidate. It's, you need a bit more challenge. But I think Singh, when he's on the hustings and actually talking to people, he can bring up a bit more of that fire and justice speech. But he just doesn't do it often enough. They also don't have any money to do it. Uh, also, you, no. you don't want to be trying to compete on the rules your opponent set. If, yeah. if Trudeau set in the rules and the game around who can be the Instagram candidate, trying to then be the Instagram candidate is a losing proposition. You need to find something else to make the election about. You also need to be able to answer questions, and he's not very good at that. Yeah, I will say... It's, there's a reason we haven't seen a lot of Jagmeet Singh recently, and I think it's going to... I'm really ex looking forward to the first leaders' debate. So we diverted a little from environmentalism, but <laughs> I think that was good. One, like, there's a ton of other issues that could still come up. One of the ones that keeps coming back to me is all of the, like, scandals, quote-unquote scandals Trudeau has faced. Some are more real than others. There was this... Do we want to talk about the whole India thing? Because I thought you were dumb. doing bring up the Aja Khan thing, but... Or that... That was the, a bit more of a real scandal. The India scandal? His trip to India? Or? No, no, no. Oh. The Aga Khan one oh, was yeah. actually Oh, yeah. The Aga Khan one was definitely... Well, I mean, you have to forget... Everyone also forgets that his dad was prime minister at one point. He, his family connections are very run very deep outside of just his dad, his mom's family, too. So did the lines blur a lot on that trip? Yes. <laughs> it, it was definitely questionable. 
but... The India stuff is just making fun of him for looking like a dweeb yeah. on holiday. Well, the best part was there was um, recently on Twitter, I think, it was Andrew Shear made a comment about the India thing and about how you don't pander to people. And I loved the responses people put out where it was just all of the times Andrew Shear showed up at like the Saki events or at the temple wearing or the one of Stephen Harper in a full headdress. I was like, well, this is, ex don't throw stones at glass houses, guys. But the one that looked like it was about to bring Trudeau down or potentially did hit the ethics numbers a bit, or did hit his poll numbers a bit more was the SNC scandal this spring. And people seem to have forgotten about it in the last month. I think that was a really interesting one too because I, I think a lot of liberals thought that was, gonna, that was it for us. We were all like, oh God, is this going to be the end of it? But I will say that they've done a really good job of pivoting from that storyline. They've done a lot of great policy announcements recently to hide it. I think also people involved... It's great being government when you can just run around the country handing out money. It's great. Um, but I think people I also have realized that the, some of the players involved may have played their hand a little too political and turned it into a po obvious political pandering. And I Not naming names. No. It, it does sound as though this may become an issue again, though, before the election. I don't think Jody Wilson-Raybould is going to let this slide, and I, I think sh it, she'll be pushing a lot of messaging in the lead-up to the election, but I think she's probably playing her cards at the moment and, and saying that it's not quite the time yet. I, I think exa that's exactly what's going to happen. She has a lot of power right now, and everyone's watching to see what she does, but yeah. at the same time, I also question how much her relevance is so many months past this and you see her out and about talking about reconciliation more to pivot to SNC suddenly and throughout the campaign where it would be a very interesting move for her to do and I just don't know if she's going to be able to do that. I don't know if she has the political advisors around her who would be able to play that smartly. Yeah and, and I think that remains to be seen is, is how she plays this election and whether or not she gets elected. Speaking of her advisors, the story today was that one of her former staff members is, is the now PPC candidate. Is now that running for the People's really Party. That was really weird because no one understands that story. Well, yeah, like she was there for less than a year. I think less than a year, and everything's about it's weird. She apparently was never a liberal in the first place, and yeah, never, left after a while. And, and yeah, I've never heard of the uh, person walks into the campaign office and gets off or constituency office and gets offered a CA job without being very connected to someone in that, in that party. I just try not to talk about the PPC. I think they're a joke. We had mostly left them off the sheet, but that mm -hmm. came up today. So yeah, I'm sorry, we had to so bring that up. It's so weird. Like, that, that whole story is weird. We, we can't not mention I, I, it. I think everything no, about sure. them is weird, though. So <laughs> I think yeah. par for the course at this point. So circling back to S&C, don't think it's going to play too much. Like, it'll probably get brought up a bunch, but being long enough since a major story broke on it. I mean, I'm still a little annoyed about it, but I don't think anyone else is really. And it's probably not going to influence votes unless something else surfaces related to it. Well, one of the questions that runs through my mind is like, which party is, or the conservatives, are, do they have cleaner hands on these kind of things than the liberals? Well, SNC is much more tied to the liberal party than the conservatives. Okay, they won't give money to SNC, but we're not going to pretend that the 10 years of Harper was clean of ethics issues. Wasn't, but like the, the, the liberals have always had like more of a Bay Street kind of big business connection than the conservatives, which that isn't where their kind of power base comes from. So 
it, it's more of a stereotypical federal liberal story, which is part of why it had so much power. No, the liberal or the conservatives are just going to sell it to the dairy industry and change <laughs> the food guide because chocolate milk is great. <laughs> it saved okay. Andrew Shear's son's life. <laughs> Could the broken promises Trudeau has made hurt him, though? I think that's much more likely. I, I think one of the big broken promises was electoral reform, and when you see them now trying to convince people to vote strategically for them again, after in 2015 promising it would be the last election after first past the post, it's a bit of a stretch. Um, I'm certainly never voting strategically again after that. Not that I voted liberal, um, but I did vote strategically in the past, uh, and uh, there's no benefit to it in my eyes. When you see uh, a party get a false sense of security, a false sense of support based on the amount of votes that they've received only because people are voting strategically or, or in huge part because of that, I, I think it leads people to become dif disenfranchised with politics or at the very least with, with that particular party for not following through on their promise. I think electoral reform is going to come back to bite them. I don't know, though, I mean, their base, there's a lot of old people who still vote who don't actually care about that. And that's that, what I'm thinking as well. Like, like it's a millennial thing yeah, or it's a younger voter thing. It's I also kind of an inside baseball thing. It like is. The, the people who are, I don't know, NDP, liberal swing voters who pay a lot of attention to politics, yeah, that's, they're going to be pissed off about the electoral reform thing, but most people who vote probably don't care that much and aren't going to decide on a broken promise from four years ago on what is a procedural thing. I think the question people are asking themselves at the polling station is, is my life better than it was four years ago? And I don't think that they've done, I don't think that question is something that the liberals have done poorly on, really. They've done some really good things and there's a, I think having like the child care benefit has done a lot of really good work for communities in Vancouver and rural communities, and that's going to, I think, play into their card cards a lot. If they promise to raise it, I'd be tempted. Well, since I'm about to get it, <laughs> I think everyone's that's the a self-interested voter. Well, they just voter, they right? just announced a raise on the 21st of July. I'll be honest; I am going to take advantage of the 18-month parental leave that Trudeau brought in and the extra days or the extra weeks. So those are policies I give a whole lot of credit to. And I like that it's parental leave, not maternal leave, because well, maternity leave is still a thing, but. But That's encouraging the name change is a really great... Oh my god, it's so complicated, though. It is. <laughs> Separate rant. Were there other broken promises, though? I think the one thing people were talking about was... I, and it wasn't a direct broken promise, but almost a disconnect between the environmental image that Trudeau pitched during the election in 2015 and the kind of more mixed and nuanced approach, which I think honestly does reflect the platform they ran on. They never said we're against pipelines, but then they buy a pipeline and people are like, where did this, why are you? There was a lot of, I think, people, what people wanted to hear and they took the messaging of what they wanted to hear from the platform, but the liberals have always been a balanced decision maker on, they've never been anti-pipeline. There were people within the party who were anti-pipeline, but. They lost. <laughs> they did lose. <laughs> but it's not, like, the environmental policies, if you read the policy book carefully, never said they would never consider buying a pipeline. They just said they would be safer about 
oil and gas. Yeah, I think that's just it. I think a lot of people weren't really in tune to what the party was actually promising. They were uh, focusing on an image that the party was portraying. And I think that the Liberal Party did a really good job of presenting themselves as being environmentally focused while never actually saying that they were going to make major commitments to protect the environment. And uh, I, I would think that voters are going to be a little bit more um, wary of image and, and, and promises this time around. And people will recognize that the image that they had of the party in 2015 is not the reality. So we'll see if that plays out. And I think that's part of the reason why um, we're all here saying that a liberal minority is, is uh, a lot more likely than a liberal majority. I like your optimism about the average voter. I, I like to be optimistic. <laughs> I think that image thing is really important because that does inform how a lot of people vote. And there's a reason why no party runs for re-election on we're doing politics differently. So like, there was always going to have to be some sort of pivot. And I'm not sure they played their hands great on doing that pivot, especially when the SNC scandal broke. It kind of took a lot of the shine off of that sort of thing after the electoral reform thing, which I know I just said wasn't that important. But like, it does add up slowly when you do one thing after another like that, and Trudeau's image was so tied up, and that's gonna be, I think, harder than a typical prime minister to shift on that. I think, though, with how the lack of performance so far from the other people, um, like, every Andrew Scheer is basically Stephen Harper 2.0. A little and more awkward. Stephen Harper never- Yeah, the handshake. Uh, yeah, Stephen Harper never reached over like two meters to try and shake Stephen someone's Stephen Harper hand. never- I don't know that band of Harpers was a little awkward. Oh God, the <laughs> Vontcats. Um, was it one of them too, a pedophile? I'm pretty sure the drummer I've got I've never named. heard about this. I'm pretty sure the drummer, I, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there was a story about the drummer getting named as a pedophile after the election in 2015. Um, you heard it here first. <laughs> pretty sure this is a CBC story. Yeah. Hopefully, or else we're going to get sued. <laughs> Definitely. I remember reading this okay. for sure. We were, because we, this went around a bunch of us being, we were all laughing at this story. So the sheer is awkward, and the other parties aren't doing well in your mind. I, I mean, Andrew Shear is the biggest opposition. The NDP just haven't been there, and you can't be opposition. Elizabeth Mace tried really hard, but it's really hard to be in opposition when you're one person in your caucus. Well, and I want to dig into the Greens a little. There are two now. They're two now, yes. They managed to pick up the by-election. I'm still struggling to try and tell, is there fire or is there a lot of smoke? Is there like a desire of the media and people to say the Greens are surging? Or is it like they kind of appeared at like 15 on a couple polls, but really they're sitting around 8 to 10% where they've been for seven years? Yes. The, so they, Yes, the, which one? Well, yeah, both are true. So they did do a search. They had some really good fundraising numbers uh, last quarter. Uh, they did pick up a by-election, which not many people thought they'd win. So there is something there. And, and they are getting a much more serious look because the provincial Green parties across the country have actually been doing pretty well. They now have seats in several legislatures. So people do consider them a more serious party. And the polling reflects that. Their by-election win reflects that. So there is something there, but at the same time, they're not going to be surging so much that they're going to have a green wave, overtake the NDP, or any of these other stories that some people have been making out here. So likely scenario, they hold their two seats, maybe pick up Victoria and one other one. Victoria, where Murray Rankin has announced he's not running again and has now been appointed to 
two or three prestigious situations. I think the provincial government gave them a negotiation with an indigenous body, I want to say, and the federal government put them on the security oversight body, which was, I think we called it a really good call, or at least <laughs> I did. And the last election, the Murray Winter won, but the Green Party placed second there. So there's a lot of potential there when there isn't an incumbent. I think the other important thing to note is that Greens often suffer because of the strategic voting uh, rhetoric. And a, a lot of people would label themselves as Greens. We hear this on the doorsteps constantly. Um, people saying, I, I would love to vote for you, but you don't stand a chance. And I think when you start seeing Greens polling above the NDP, people start realizing that they're a viable option now, and that can really um, play a huge role in, in who gets elected. I don't think that there is going to be a massive surge. Um, we're certainly, you know, not forming government, um, but I think we could see a, a big uptick in the amount of MPs that are elected. And as a longtime NDP voter, where we're always complaining about uh, strategic voting at the federal level for the Greens to be like, if we get ahead of the NDP, then people won't worry about strategic voting. It's like, yeah, and man, I, I love your optimism, Nicole. You know, the, the thing is, I always criticize the NDP for uh, trying to use strategic voting as a reason to vote for them instead of the Greens, instead of using their policy. Um, and I think that's the important thing for the Greens right now in the position that they're in is not to use strategic voting against the NDP. I think we need to be above that. I mean, I hope the Greens get more than two seats. I I think it's an interesting, necessary voice that we don't have right now in spades. But I, I also don't know, seeing how they pulled really high in every poll before every federal election and then collapsed to one seat each time, is the political infrastructure there at the federal level to win outside of a by-election? Yeah, the Greens are such a contradiction because there's a lot of potential there because they actually steal votes from across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. There are conservative... Michael Chong type voters, looking at you, Scott, who would vote green? But then there are liberals and NDP who you more traditionally expect to be you know, lefty like the federal greens. But the greens appeal to across the spectrum and many call them Tories with bikes, but you know, they appeal to all kinds. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, again, it comes back to that whole strategic voting rhetoric. Uh, when you talk about the polling uh, being good before federal elections, it needs to be good enough that people feel confident that they can vote for the party and have their vote mean something under a first-past-the-post system, and we're getting closer and closer, so there's eventually going to be a breaking point where we see Greens actually getting elected because of these polling numbers, um, where that hasn't happened in the past. But then they also make mistakes like hire Warren Kinsella. You know, I, I don't see that as a mistake. Um, I think... I, 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 <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I do not like Warren Kinsella. Uh, I'll make that clear. But I don't think it was a mistake to bring him in because he's representative of how all of the other parties operate. And if you want to gain an understanding of how the other parties operate, you need to have someone like that telling you about it. I think it was a, a good call to bring him in and for a short period of time to educate the party on, on how they can defend themselves from the attacks that they're receiving based on their higher polling numbers. And, and I'm glad that he's not with the party anymore. Yeah, he has pretty much represented or worked for well, every party at this point. I think the only one left is the PPC. That's true, yeah. He, okay, well, and give that's, it another that's month. counting Olivia Chow's mayoral run as yeah. an NDP run, yeah. He gets around. <laughs> I think this is probably a good point to pivot to what the other parties need to do to win. What are their paths to victory? We kind of touched on the Dream's path to, I guess, relevancy or picking up more seats. Uh, but what about the Conservatives? What do they have to do to turn that likely liberal minority into a conservative minority or majority? I think they really need to get away from this 
front of the uh, yellow vests, the extremist side of their party, which they have not done, the pandering to people who promote hatred, hate, hatred and divisiveness is something that's been really shocking to see Andrew Shearer start to lean into more. And it's a little scary. It's almost like he read the t- split of Maxime Bernier for something that it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's like I was going to say. I'm going to double numbers, down. I'm going to double like, down on what he's doing because it's yeah. working out really well yeah. for him so far. It's like well, he's gotten two percent in the polls once, and I'm like, why are you polling about him then? Yeah, I, well, I have very few arguments with conservatives when it comes to uh, fiscal uh, conservatism. Uh, it's not my politics, but. I can understand where people are coming from when it comes to fiscal conservatism. When it comes to social conservatism, I think that's where parties really fail. And to see Andrew Scheer becoming more and more socially conservative um, is is a big issue. And, and I think I that that's something they need to rectify. I wouldn't say it's not necessarily becoming more and more. I think it's showing who he showing it. His yeah, true yeah, I colors. Agree. I mean, he's the only leader who didn't walk in any pride parade. It's yeah, not like Vancouver was going to let him though. They would have let him walk with like the Vancouver Conservatives pulled out at the parade. Yeah, they, they were yeah. supposed they were, to be in it. Yeah, yeah. The, the Conservatives here okay. pulled out. The Vancouver Center uh, yeah. pulled out. Right. But like um, back during when they were having the leadership race, good chunk of the candidates marched in the Toronto Pride Parade. Yeah. So th- there so, was potential there, but that's not how they went. Um, but yeah, I think that's the social conservative thing is the Achilles heel of them, and unfortunately they tried to basically close any distance with Maxime Bernier to starve him of oxygen, and that's, if anything, just going to alienate the people they really need to win over. I wonder if Andrew Scheer is just so concerned about being Brian Mulroney and having the, like, social... Stay with me. And having the social conservatives break off and, you know, be a new reform party, be the People's Party, but, like, the People's Party is as, as successful as the reform party was in the 90s, and then suddenly the conservatives are gone, so he's like... Well, I always shore up the base, and that'll be fine. So, so there is like a real fear among the right of splitting up. So, I, I think that does play into it. And I think the point we're all getting at, though, is the conservatives need to stay out of their own way. Like the liberals have done a lot of damage to their own brand, and kind of keep highlighting that because the conservatives are still tied or in the lead in most of the polls. And when most people go, yeah, but will they really win? If they can stay out of their own way, they could. I think it's going to come down to the campaign side. Scheer is not tested in an actual campaign. One thing Trudeau has going for him and Elizabeth May has is they've done this before. You have two brand new leaders who have won nomin- who have won in- internal races that were very public, but they've never been up to public scrutiny when it's not just their people throwing the questions at them. Yeah, and Shear's whole strategy has basically been play to the base. Mm-hmm. and That doesn't yeah, really play well when no, you have does, to play the general public. Exactly. He doesn't seem well positioned to shift. Past conservative leaders have done that. You don't even have to be charismatic to win as a conservative. Stephen Harper managed to eat out <laughs> several wins, and like, he yeah, it was one like of some, the least charismatic Canadians to have ever been born. I think someone once said to me, it's like someone described smiling to Stephen Harper, and he went with like the creepy version of it. <laughs> How many federal politicians in Canada, or federal leaders, can't smile? <laughs> At least in 2015, it was the majority of the people running for prime minister. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to the liberals. We, we kind of touched on it a bit, but how do they have to kind of regain the momentum they had? I think they need to be committed to environmental protections and show it in some meaningful way other than buying a pipeline, because uh, that's certainly not showing us anything. Um, I, I would like to see them 
acknowledge head on the, the failures of the government and how they're going to rectify them in the future. I don't know if that's going to help them, but that's something I'd like to see. Um, and I think Trudeau needs to show that he is a leader and not just a pretty face. I think he has, I think he has to prove on this campaign that he can work with other parties. That's because if you are going to be in a potential minority situation, demonstrate that early on and show, give people at least a little more confidence that it's not going to be, we're not going to an election every two years. And that's a really good suggestion because one of the things that came out of Vancouver Pride was this photo of him and Elizabeth May and Jagmeet Singh in the staging area that everyone was like, leaders march Vancouver Pride together. And I'm like, no, they didn't but they were pictured together yeah but marching in pride is like wrangling cats everyone's gonna do what they want to do at that point I was marshalling I was marshalling one of our when liberal floats and that was literally like I walked away and I was like I want everything alcoholic at this point (laughs) (laughs) but the fact they got that photo together and they got that story out there kind of plays towards that we're the good guys don't vote for the bad guys. Well, I think having one leader predominantly not be in that photo really helps that narrative. Yeah, and I think that is going to be their, one of the main strategies is really hammer the conservatives on that. It, it's a classic liberal playbook, but it's a classic for a reason. I think you also have to be careful that you're not splitting down the middle one party and three parties, right? If you're, um, and, and I don't like to talk about vote splitting really, because again, I don't believe in strategic voting, but if you're trying to create a story like that, where you're saying you've got the Conservatives or you've got these three other parties, then you risk uh, alienating a lot of people and you risk um, having your votes diluted. The Liberals also have a deep baked in structural advantage right now. Quebec is looking like it's back to their province. So that gives them a lot of seats already. They'll hold most of the Maritimes. They can only go down from there because they have them all. So they probably lose a couple seats. Ontario is going to be a big, strong battleground. Big divisive I, I battleground. Shear's ties to Ford is really going to hurt him right now. You're seeing people very upset with the Ford government, and Ford is latching on to Shear like there's no tomorrow. But Shear's tried, but it's not really working. So and so if and Jason Kenney. Yeah, I think. Although the Liberals are, have two seats of the four they won in Alberta, and they can write those off, but they probably hope to hold. Yeah, BC and Alberta are really interesting because in BC, the Liberal government really needs to show that they're committing to environmental protections, while in Alberta, they need to show that they're committed to pushing through a pipeline. So, (laughs) trying to... saying we bought a pipeline and we're going to use the proceeds to fund environmentalism is... It's it's a smart move, it's just not a realistic one. Even then, at most, they're going to hopefully hold on to their couple seats, maybe pick up one. It's, you can't do a huge amount with Alberta if you're the Liberals. So I think the big battle is in Ontario, but I think you're right, Zoe, in that the majority of the fight is being lost by the Conservatives every time Doug Ford says, hey, Andrew. Yeah, I think the GTA is going to be a very interesting area to watch. The Liberals have a really good hold on it right now, and if they can hold on to it, it's going to help them a lot moving west. And maybe it'll be an election where... We don't know the results when the polls close here yeah, in BC. That would be lovely. It makes it a lot easier to get people to go to vote. Okay, uh, and the NDP, they have not been doing too great for quite a while now. And how do they get out of their rut? They, yeah, make, some, they make some money. That would be great <laughs> if all the members actually donated to the party, but I, I am not actually donating that much, so I can't speak <laughs> well. I think the pieces are there. I think some of the ideas and the willingness to be more bold than they've been is there. And I think the fire and the willingness to call out injustice and speak 
power that they're good at. It's all there, but they're just kind of spinning their tires a bit, waiting to catch the traction, and they need to put some money into ads. Maybe they just don't have the money, so they're just going to throw it all at the election and try and go from you know, where they're at to where they were. One of the things to remember, like long term, the NDP's not far off of where they've been historically. I think they're polling between 14 and 20 percent. You look back 30, 40 years, that's still a decent to good showing for them. And now that's, dis that's painting some broken down car as though it's a new electric Prius and calling it a Tesla. But I lost that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> they need to get out there and they need to make their message known. It was such a mistake for Jagmeet Singh to be out of parliament for so long. And it didn't help when he, he finally did decide to go to- that he's driven through. Well, he picked a seat, Burnaby South, that then he didn't get a by-election in for a significant amount of time, which was entirely within Trudeau's ability to control. Yeah, I'm, not he, I'm, not, I'm looking at you, but I'm yeah. not blaming you, Zoe. <laughs> but like, should he have had to wait for Trudeau? Like, no, he maybe had, there, six months. There were several seats in Ontario that came up that were much closer yep. to home that he should have run in. And waiting for a safe seat showed everyone in his party that he was afraid of actually having to run in a contested race, it seemed. It wasn't the safest of seats, but it was safe. I, and you could always do what the <laughs> traditional route is of have someone in a safe seat step down yeah. and pick that up. Yeah. Although I don't think that would have necessarily played all that well either. No. Well, I, I, it would I, have played better than running four provinces from where you've, where I, you've run. More importantly, I think it would have played better than waiting a long time for it. And this is what everyone expects to have happen. It didn't really hurt Christy Clark all that much to have to go to Kelowna to win uh, her seat there. Like, and it helped when, that she'd won the election. That yes, that, that definitely helped. But it's just what is typically done. And nobody reads into it too much that you had to run in a safe seat. Well, I, I don't know what circles you were in, but I, I was hearing a lot of backlash when Christy Clark did that. I mean, the general public also doesn't pay attention to by-elections. I remember telling people that I was helping out in Burnaby South, and someone said, what's happening in Burnaby South? <laughs> and I was like, oh, right. People outside of politics don't well, know this. The, the liberals also had a couple hiccups in that riding. Yeah. We also were, we don't it was like relive. hit right at the time, the peak SNC scandal, so. So, yeah, the NDP have a tough ride, but I think, I don't know how they get Quebec back, and I think that's going to be the toughest challenge for them. They lost a number of seats in 2015 after Jack's wave, and holding on to even the they popular MPs there. Couldn't even win a by-election seat that was small cares. And I love the candidate. Rachel is fantastic. I just, when I remember her running, and I remember being at the convention in 2014 when they announced she was going running against Mulcair, and I said she has no hope in hell. I didn't ever think that five years later she was going to be an MP in that riding. In a way, it was a very historically liberal riding mm -hmm. that then Mulcair, as a Quebec liberal, was able to mm -hmm. bring to the NDP. But, Losing you know, that. he'd started to build the beachhead there. And well, so I, Quebec's a challenge for the NDP. I think the better question is, should they put resources into Quebec at all rather than trying to win back more traditional NDP seats? They lost a couple in the Maritimes. They could probably pick up a couple in the GTA if things go well for them. Like, maybe Quebec just isn't worth the effort. It's a question of whether they play a defensive campaign or try to keep, continue the offensive campaigns they were doing under Jack Layton where they did build up Quebec. 
And I think there's a difference between spending money on individual campaigns and having a charismatic leader that, that really shows uh, what the party stands for. Uh, right now, I don't really see much that's setting the NDP apart from any of the other parties. Sure, they've got uh, a pretty good plan when it comes to pharmacare. Other than that, uh, their uh, environmental plan is literally half as good as the green plan. Um, you know, th there's it's not... more pages. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's all I have to say about that. Um, but they're, they're really not setting themselves apart. And, and like I said before, I think Jagmeet Singh needs to learn to answer questions before the debate comes around. Or he can just do what Adrian Dix did in the 2015 election. Flip-flop halfway through? Yes. Or get really awkward when everyone asks him the question that everyone knew was coming. The NDP are great at losing elections. Oh, <laughs> Okay, uh, let's finish off on looking at a couple more predictions on how you think the election's going to go. Uh, but let's zoom in a little bit more. Does Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, do they keep their seats? I really haven't heard much about them recently. I hope Jody Wilson-Raybould keeps her seat. I think that she's got a lot of principle. I think that she's a, a really good voice to have. Um, but they're going to have to do something to get their names out there, uh, make sure that people remember them because they had a lot of momentum and I think it sort of died off a little bit. So uh, whether they're able to do that or not, I think is the big question. I definitely agree with that. I don't think Jody has the momentum she had a few months ago. I think she's facing a very similar thing to what happened with Lead Now in that riding in 2015 where you see polls that are showing she's very popular, but if you ever, but there's no breakdown on where those people are voting and I think within her riding, she faces a really big struggle where you have three traditional parties that will most likely get a lot of the vote given the demographics. And, you know, I know that the Liberals still don't have their candidate announced. I know they announced their nomination meeting for it today. Um, but, you know, the Liberals are going to throw in everything they have to try and keep that Liberal. Yeah, because that is true. A lot of people will vote for a party over a candidate, so you really need to have some amazing name recognition to beat out three established parties in that riding. And you have to have a really good campaign structure, and if she doesn't have the money or the resources, it's going to hurt her. I can't see Jane Philpott winning. No, she's like in the safe, like she's in like a strong liberal seat. Yeah, uh, kudos to her for the principles, but uh, Judo, Jody Wilson-Raybould has the better shot. I generally still think it's a significant uphill battle for her. The poll tracker on CBC right now is showing the other parties or other candidates have a chance of getting one seat, which I was like, who? So maybe that's Jody Wilson-Raybould. And Did I hear that she was releasing a book? Yeah, September, yes. is it September 20th? Yeah, yeah, mid -September? It's, it's coming up before yeah. the election. Yeah, I mean, J Jagmeet's book got a lot of attention, so who knows, maybe that'll work I've in her favor. It's about reconciliation, so. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I, I've heard that it, it brings up some of what happened within the SNC-Lavalin affair, so that was part of what my comment earlier was about in terms of that potentially coming up as another issue before the election. I'll say she wins it, just to put a prediction down. <laughs> <laughs> I say she loses it. The riding's such a wild card, it's really hard to say. I'm going to guess she's going to lose, but I'm not putting any money down on which party actually takes it. I'm going to be optimistic and say that she wins. Split down the middle. Okay. Um, now, many of us may not remember this because they've been pretty much irrelevant, but the block is still a party and they're still running. <laughs> Do they pick up more seats? Do they lose? Do they just fade into uh, obscurity? I will say, though, Quebec electing the party Quebecois back. 
made me question, I was like, maybe the block can be relevant again, <laughs> especially within the rural, rural ridings. You're, I think that's where you're going to, they may take seats from the NDP in the rural ridings. They're definitely going to take seats from the conservatives. The party Quebecois didn't come back. Or the CAC did. The CAC. Yeah. <laughs> I, honestly, I <laughs> okay. don't know the parties in Quebec. I just know that the conservative, very conservative pro-Quebec party did, and that resurgence made me realize the conservatives are screwed in Quebec. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't follow Quebec politics closely enough to really know what kind of a chance they stand. I don't know the messaging that's happening over there, but certainly from the perspective of someone who lives in BC and who hears nothing about the Bloc Québécois, it seems like they're fading away. So we'll, we'll have to see. I think they have a chance to take a lot of seats back from the NDP because they're just kind of the natural, we don't like the federal government, but we want something a bit leftist, Bloc, NDP, whatever, just stir stuff up. They've had some internal troubles, so that, that might throw a wrench in, although I hear that's sort of calmed down now, so they'll probably pick up a few seats, but you know, we're, we're four anglophones thousands of miles away, so we're probably all completely miscalled this. Were there key target voters? <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of us really have the answers here. So if this does go to a minority, how does the post-election balance of power work out? Now, that, this is obviously hard to say because we won't know the seat counts, but how are the parties going to align themselves in a, say, very close minority situation between the Liberals and the Conservatives? Uh, who are we expecting to be holding the balance of power? <laughs> well, that's my question. Like, if, if the Liberals and the Conservatives both have within a couple seats of each other, but both are in a minority, how does the other parties react to that? I mean, I, I think they would react in a similar way that the uh, BC Greens reacted here in BC, which would be to form a confidence and supply agreement and um, to support government on, on those issues uh, while trying to hold them accountable on, on everything else. Um, you know, that's how I see things working, especially if Canadian Greens were to get elected. I know that Elizabeth May has stated that um, she's willing to work with any party, uh, provided that they're willing to make uh, changes that accommodate green policy and make sure that environmental protections are in place. I think it all comes down to how strong the bloc actually does. Because the 2008 confidence or coalition crisis, as it came to be, known the coup yeah that i was living in alberta at the time and it's hard to underplay how you know what fever pitch the conservatives went to when that came down and man stefan dion's like overshot by including the block in photo ops and we don't need to like shit on his inability to manage a message even if he had good ideas did that on a website for them yeah hey but uh, yeah, that, that's the challenge with having the block in there is they're such a non-starter for the rest of Canada that including them in any sort of power arrangements, pretty much a way to get the population to kind of at least give it a very skeptical look. And I think very similar to the BC Greens, the federal situation is most favorable if it's, you know, liberals with support from Greens and NDP in the same way the BC Greens felt more natural with the NDP and the reports are that it was Sonia first and I was like vomiting over the idea of working with Christy Clark that kind of collapsed that government, whether that's true or not, despite yeah. Andrew Weaver's more openness. Yeah, I mean, from being involved in some of the, the outskirts of the discussions that were happening at the time, I know that it really just came down to which party was willing to implement the most green policy. Christy Clark refused to go to meetings. The Liberals really didn't offer much, and so the clear choice was to go with the NDP. But they, they weren't ruling out 
the BC Liberals off the bat. It really came down to, to the conversations that happened. Um, I think one of the things that I'm really interested to know is if there's a conservative minority with the NDP holding the balance of power, would they support Andrew Scheer the way Jack Layton supported the conservatives? That would be a really interesting thing because they sure gave the Greens a hard time for um, saying that they'd be willing and open to working with the Conservatives and any party for that matter, uh, but they gave them a hard time over the Conservatives in particular despite the fact that they had worked with them in the past. I think if the NDP were to say they were going to work with the Conservatives, it might be the final nail in Jagmeet's coffin. <laughs> Let's not forget uh, Michael Ignatieff's double secret probation period for <laughs> Stephen Harper. <laughs> yeah, but Michael Ignatieff never won his seat back. <laughs> Yeah, I, th there just isn't enough bad blood around the liberals at this moment that uh, they, the other parties, I don't think, would walk away from a deal with them. And like, they get first kicked at the can regardless of how many seats they win. So I think I where it becomes an issue is if the conservatives are very, are the clear. Like plurality you know, winners. But. You know, they have a clear majority of the, or plurality of the vote. They're within a couple seats of a majority. And there's no path for the other parties to form because of the block to form a majority of seats. In that case, you get a Stephen Harper type minority situation where it's kind of vote by vote. Let's see what you can do. Maybe we abstain from the budget to let it pass, those kind of situations. Yeah, I don't see the bloc as being a party that would be particularly easy to work with. Um, and I think it would be, uh, you know, uh, the bloc Quebecois holding the, a balance of power with the conservative minority would be probably one of the worst case scenarios in my mind but we'll have to see how things play out. Okay, any final thoughts on the election? I'm so excited, and by that <laughs> I mean like terrified for all of the foreign interference, the white nationalist talking points, the toxicity, the overall just like, it's gonna get real exhausting real quick, and I'm, I guess in a way, glad I'm gonna be like elbow deep in diapers for that entire <laughs> period and don't have to pay attention to it. Yeah, one of the things I'm really hoping doesn't happen is that all of that rhetoric uh, doesn't get published in the media the way it was in the States when Trump was um, running. You know, I, I think it's extremely problematic when you have an individual that spews all of this kind of racist garbage and uh, is given a platform to do it by the media. And, and I get that media is required to sort of report on the happenings of the time, but when you look at some of the things that Maxime Bernier, for instance, is saying, it's, it's extremist and I don't think it deserves a platform. I think that could really change the way that politics happen in, in Canada. And uh, I don't want to see politics taking the direction that it has in the States. Yeah, I think that's my biggest fear is we see Trumpism actually spread to Canada and you see those hatred, the hatred and the attacks that have started to happen. Those, there's no place for that in Canada. I think we've done really well so far of trying to build messages of positive politics and I think the media has done a fairly good job of making sure those messages aren't being reported on. I mean, you barely hear about the PPC other than when you get the funny candidate names, which every party has, but it, that I think is gonna be my biggest fear is what, and the effects of foreign interference. I wanted to mention a funny uh, acronym that I was looking up before the show. The BC Provincial Police Force was a thing in the past, so we did have the BCPP until 1950. <laughs> and with that, maybe let's go to a few <laughs> questions before we wrap up. Did anyone in the audience wanna ask 
any of the panelists up here or just give your own thoughts about the election because as we know most question periods start with the this is more of a comment than a question <laughs> sleeper issue of the election I mean it's it's a good question because <laughs> I'm struggling here to, to think of what that might be I'm gonna say I think seniors issues is gonna be a really big one um, we have a really big aging population we don't really and seniors issues not necessarily just you know where they're gonna live or how we're gonna pay for them but also long-term effects of seniors health care putting forward those frameworks for dementia Parkinson's and all of those making sure that social isolation doesn't happen in within seniors communities yeah and, and, and that's a really interesting one too actually because I'm hearing a lot of stories at the moment about LGBTQ2 plus seniors and having to go back in the closet at that age so I think there really does need to be a revamp of how we take care of seniors uh, and, and I would love to see that be a, an issue I think another thing that could come up is and this is going to be a very Scott issue is international trade we're in the midst of still the USMCA negotiations, the NAFTA 2.0, Congress, I don't think, has managed to pass it, which means it's still kind of floating in the tentative approved by Trudeau, by Trump, and by the Mexican president that I've forgotten at the moment. And we're kind of waiting for, Canada's waiting for the US government to pass it formally before we decide it. And Andrew Scheer has been very critical of it, saying, you know, we compromised on everything, even though he can't really say what he'd have done differently other than more protections for our dairy farmers, <laughs> which fine, I don't know, I don't care. Chocolate milk is really important, okay? Drink your chocolate milk, so maybe trade. I think there's probably gonna be something that gets imported from the States, likely guns maybe, uh, as an issue that's gonna come off. Like if there's another mass shooting in the States, the, there's, that's probably gonna inform the uh, election debate. You know what I'd love to see a national debate on that we actually should have, but I'm almost going to guarantee won't be an election issue is reconciliation and whether Trudeau's record has lived up to his promise. Yeah, I, I would say it hasn't. Um, again, like the environment, there was this understanding that he was going to um, be good when it comes to reconciliation, and, and that hasn't really played out in a lot of the actions that we've seen from the government. Um, but coming back to trade with, with the US, I think you're right. I think Donald Trump could play a huge role in this. I mean, he's so volatile, anything could happen between now and the election. And we're already seeing talk in the media at the moment about the banning of handguns. So I, I could see that being an issue. Yeah, I would say the handgun issue is another one. Other questions? <laughs> will any party make criminal justice reform an issue? Uh, no. The NDP will probably attempt it. It's not likely to go anywhere. And yeah, it'll get brought up once or twice. Probably not going to be a major issue. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think that uh, it's something that the parties don't feel they have much to gain from and a lot to lose from, so they're probably going to try to stay away from it. I agree. Like, it's something we saw the Liberals actually try a little bit with criminal code reform and a bit of work on it, and a mixed record on that. I think there were some good things. I think there was also, a, it was really slow, and this is one area where you know, I've been critical of Jody Wilson-Raybould because it was her file, and it's like, why did simple zombie law repeal bills take years to get through Parliament? It's because, well, you sucked at your job, maybe. <laughs> you know, you, over, you mixed it too much and tried to do too many things when all you needed to do was say, we're going to repeal the laws like witchcraft that are in the... No, sorry, and, fake witchcraft. And, and dueling. <laughs> and dueling. And the blasphemy law, which is yes. the one I actually was following and cared about. 
from the criminal code, but then we're also going to add some things about sexual assault that will piss off defense lawyers, and then we'll add this weird, like, every law needs a charter assessment, which is fine. It's like Actually, that uh, the taking a long time to get through Parliament does make me think of another potential sleeper issue, which would be the Senate, because there's been a bunch of reforms that come in. It's kind of gummed up the works a bit. I could see that coming up as the thing nobody's paying attention to, but... I, I mean, we've seen it come up in the past, and it's been kind of a non-starter. It gets talked about briefly and then it gets just thrown under the rug. But coming back to uh, the criminal code, like you mentioned, I think one of the things I would love for there to be a focus on is banning of conversion therapy. And that's something that we're talking a lot about in BC here. Um, BC Greens have been pressuring the BC NDP to ban conversion therapy and getting a lot of pushback from the BC NDP over it. Um, but there's also this recognition that that needs to be done at a federal level. And so um, if there's some way of making that a federal issue, I'd like to see that happen. Yeah, I think that's a really big one. I know there's been a lot of talk about it lately with the, in BC, and I'd love to see that conversation happen at a federal level. But yeah, criminal justice reform is just not a winning vote issue, despite how important I think it is. Will Alberta separatism get traction? No. 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 <laughs> I mean, there's also the Cascadia movement, Quebec Which we are 100% behind. <laughs> I, I don't th see, think they, it's going anywhere. I see it becoming a meme. <laughs> what could each party be blindsided by? I think, Nicola, you brought up Jody Wilson-Raybould's book is probably a coming blindside for the Liberals. Whether the state, you know, regardless of what the statements are in it, and even if she makes it all up, which I think is unlikely, it's likely to, you know, become a media round. Yeah, I, th I think there's certainly that. I think there's also uh, just political spin, and I think it's really difficult to tell what a party is going to be blindsided by. If, if parties could tell, they wouldn't get blindsided, obviously. But uh, when it came to uh, the whole conversation around um, Elizabeth May's comments on working with conservatives that were just completely taken out of context, and the conversation that uh, around Kinsella, for instance, I think there was a, so much political spin happening there at, in an attempt to blindside the party. I, I don't think it worked, but, but it's that kind of thing that uh, can affect parties that they can't necessarily see coming. Or her comments about having SNC somehow involved in solving the water crisis on First Nations Reserve. Well, and the I, NDP has been pushing that like... Elizabeth May is crazy to suggest that. Exactly, and, and, and again, it comes down to political spin. The reality is that all she said is, you know, maybe that should be their punishment, is to provide um, clean water to these places that Trudeau has been neglecting. Uh, if it's how it gets done, then I, I fully support it, um, because the government's not doing anything at the moment. So sometimes the blindsides come from a leader's own comments that then get taken out of context or not. Other blind sides? For the Conservatives, uh, Andrew Shear's ties to the rebel. Well, that would be a fun one. I would love to see that one take some. Will, will it blow up further, though, because Hamish Marshall's already been announced as leader. His name is on fundraising emails already. Is there, there more I, meat to that story? There's probably some good stuff isn't quite the right word, but so, some meat there that the liberal war room has saved. Undoubtedly, there'll be more bozo eruptions. Yes, and, and bad candidate vetting that. Something someone will have said on social media. I'm, I'm looking forward to the bad candidates coming out from all parties. Are we going to beat uh, the guy caught peeing, peeing in, in someone's cup? cup? No, I don't, someone's I don't like know. I mean, I don't really think that's something you want to aspire to beat, but sure. Why is this not the first time this has happened, too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Real question. It uh, leads right off. I was going to actually ask before we even said that, but 
Is this the first time we accept that a young person that's running for office might have said something stupid on Facebook 10 years ago? Like, are we now to a point where maybe the innocuous stupid cop from 2006 is now accepted as being okay? I think it's going to take a couple more cycles to do so, and you're going to need to have the millennials get to be a, and post-millennial generations become a larger share of the voting population and have a larger impact on the culture before we're at that point. I agree. I don't think we're at that point where we'll see a stupid comment made by someone in their teens not affect them as a political candidate. Yeah, I have to agree. And I think it's going to be a long time before we ever see that happen, if it ever does, because when it comes to campaigning, your opponents are always looking for dirt in any way they can find it to use against you. So um, it, it's, it's always going to be something that, that people are going to go looking for. They're going to do deep dives into your social media and try to pull up those embarrassing posts. I'll take a little more of a contrary view. I think we'll start to see a bit more nuance this election. It won't just be any stupid comment, but you know, if you post a Nazi meme when you're 20 or 18 and you're running yeah. at 25 or 30, call that fucker out. It, it's when you double down on those comments too. Yeah. I think so many young people retweet something without really realizing what's being said or the context and hopefully people are starting to realize that, but I don't see this happening this election maybe next election cycle, hopefully. Yeah, and I think that's the difference between it being a small issue and being a big issue is how the person responds to it. And we've seen a little bit of movement towards forgiveness. I remember after the Alberta NDP got elected, they almost did the vetting after, this, the social media vetting after, because the conservatives, what were the progressive conservatives doing in that 2017, or what was it, 2015, 2015. Alberta election? Because it was like, Deborah Dredger, look at all this crap she posted online. Yeah, if your war room knew what they were doing, they would have released that three weeks before the election instead of the day after. So instead, she spent some time in the penalty box and then came back and you know lost the next election. But she managed to get back in the party because it turns out, yeah, you can still be a candidate. So I'm hopeful we're starting to move forward in that you know if you post a racy photo or I don't know buy a human skull was that <laughs> is that a disqualifying thing? You heard that story, right? Yeah, the I don't. Conservative candidate. I don't know if that's disqualifying. It's it's just it's weird. weird. It's a weird hobby to have and publicly talk about. Uh, we'll take one last question up front. Will foreign interference favor the conservatives? I think it's really hard to tell what kind uh, what foreign interference is going to be trying to accomplish um, because I think depending on the goal of it, it's going to favor certain parties over others. So I I think. It's really difficult to say which party it might favor, but the Conservatives would be probably higher on my list. It's going to depend, and there's not just going to be one foreign actor involved. So because of that, you're going to have more uh, goals being attempted to be accomplished here. So that's going to basically mean both, I think, are going to be the result of it. I think the Russians will probably lean a lot more on just create disarray, whereas other foreign governments might try and get a direct electoral outcome for a party they'd like. Yeah, I think it's too, it's going to be really hard to tell unless we know what their outcome is. And I don't think you've really seen a ton so far, I'm going to say. Yeah, I've seen reports that it's expected. expected. Uh, I haven't seen yeah. reports that it's I've, I've seen a lot currently of, happening it to some large degree. Yeah, and I know that like I, w I got to sit in on a talk with Facebook about their plan to prevent foreign interference, and they're going to make it a lot harder to operate ads. It was hard to operate an ad for this event. Yeah, it's a lot that. harder now to operate ads, period. 
So will it have the same effect that it had in the States? I don't know. I think also people are more aware of it now and they're looking for it a lot more. I think it's definitely one of those stories where Canadians follow really closely what's happening in the States and just project it onto our own politics. That's not to say there's no foreign interference in Canada or we shouldn't be prepared or taking actions about it, but because of the role it probably played in helping get Donald Trump elected, we are being like hyper vigilant and like on edge about it here. And that narrative helps the federal liberal party and they're going to lean into it a little bit more than other parties because you know, if you're scared about Trump and type politics in Canada, you want to talk about how foreign interference is bad. And so I wonder if a lot of these stories are being pushed up by maybe not the Liberal Party directly, but they're talking heads and people sympathetic because it's not that the foreign interference favors conservatives, but that talking and fear-mongering about foreign interference almost favors liberals. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think when you look at Trump being conservative and uh, Trump being quite... Um, a loose cannon, you would see that the folks who oppose uh, this kind of interference are going to be the folks that oppose Trump. And in Canada, the closest thing to Trump uh, would be Maxime Bernier and Andrew Scheer. Okay, uh, before we close off, um, thank you both for coming. Why don't you uh, tell our guests and our listeners where they can find you? Uh, I am Nicola E. Sperling on all of my social media. I work with the Tri-Cities Pride Society. I'm on Provincial Council for the BC Greens. You can hear me on CBC's The Early Edition from 7.40 until 8 almost every Monday, although we're on a hiatus at the moment. Uh, so that's, that's where I am. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's Zoe underscore fairy. And um, whenever majority of BC starts resuming recording, we'll be back. And follow the podcast at Politicoast Pod on Twitter and just Politicoast on Facebook. Uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you to Creative Coworkers for hosting us. This has been our 150th live episode. The music you heard was Beautiful British Columbia by Sergei Potnikov. And August 8th by NoFX, because it's August 8th. Yes. Thanks for listening and thanks for coming out. We'll see you in 50 episodes. Or probably on the election. We'll probably be doing an election night party. <laughs> <laughs>